Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. Seventy-five years ago today, the Japanese bombed the American naval fleet and airfields at Pearl Harbor. The surprise attack was one of the seminal events in American history and brought the United States into World War II. More than 2,400 Americans were killed at Pearl Harbor. Many more survived, but the number of survivors living today is dwindling every day. The focus of today's program is Pearl Harbor and World War II. We begin with a survivor. 103-year-old James Downing is the second oldest survivor of the Pearl Harbor attack. He was 28 at the time. Mr. Downing is originally from Missouri, but his son, Dr. David Downing, teaches English at Elizabethtown College, and he put us in touch with his father. Jim Downing is in Hawaii right now. You just heard on NPR discussion of the 75th anniversary commemoration ceremonies at Pearl Harbor. Jim Downing spoke to us from Hawaii. Jim Downing, it's an honor to speak with you this morning, and welcome to Smart Talk in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Over the last 75 years, how often have you thought about December 7th, 1941? Well, the few years after it happened, uh, I thought about it a lot. But the, uh, some of the memories are very good. I kind of live one day at a time. I don't, I'm not too concerned about what happened yesterday or tomorrow. It's much fun living today. So I don't brood over the past. But when you do think about it, what thoughts come to your mind? Yes, well, I've tried to summarize my emotions. And the first was surprise. We didn't have any uh, satellites in those days. And radar was not accepted and in use. So all we knew in those days is what we saw with our eyes. So it was a great surprise to me to see these Japanese planes coming in. The first Japanese plane that got close to me backed over, turned his machine guns loose. He went over my head and dug a trench in the dirt behind so the next thing I, that I experienced was fear. I was afraid the next Japanese plane would be a little more accurate. And then, uh, if I could just mention a couple other things, I was angry that the world had allowed the Japanese to embark on a world conquest. I was angry with our military and political leaders for allowing this to happen. And then um, I made a resolve. If I ever get in a position of authority, it will never happen again. But overarching all these things was the magnificent way in which our men handled the attack. Everybody instinctively did the right thing at no risk of their own safety. So my final motion was being very proud of the way our men performed that day. Well, let's go back to December 7th, 1941. You were 28 at the time. You were stationed on the USS West Virginia as a gunner's maiden postmaster. From what I understand, that morning your wife was cooking breakfast for you and a few of your buddies. 
your home was just a few miles from the harbor. What happened? When did you realize that you were under attack? The uh, first warning was the heavy explosions and the smoke. We turned on the radio, and the uh, MC that morning, Webby Edwards, owned the station, and he said, we have been advised by Army and Navy intelligence that the island of Oahu is under enemy attack. The enemy has not been identified. So then he said, well, keep tuned. A few minutes later, he came on and said, the enemy has been identified as Japan. So we realized that after hearing that radio message that war was on, we needed to get back to our ships as soon as possible. So the uh, other men and I jumped in the car and raced down the harbor, uh, to the harbor as fast as we could get there. Once you got there, what did you see? Uh, the place where we lived was up in a, a valley, so we couldn't see the harbor till we got about three miles down the road. Uh, I'd been aboard the West Virginia for almost 10 years, and to see it sinking and on fire, and uh, the Arizona on fire, and the battleship. Uh, ahead of us, the Oklahoma was on fire. So I couldn't believe that they could do that much destruction in short, uh, such a short time. Most of the damage was done that morning in the first 11 minutes as the uh, 40 torpedo bombers dropped the torpedoes and nearly 100 dive bombers started dropping their bombs. I'm trying to picture this in my mind, and I know that our listeners are as well. As you were looking around, you're seeing these ships sinking. What was the noise like? What were some of the smells that you had? Well, each battleship carries about a million gallons of crude oil to fire the boilers. And uh, that was spilled out on the surface of the water. The fire from the Arizona was so hot that ignited the oil on top of the water. So coming out of the ships on the water for a couple hundred feet were these flames. A lot of men had been blown overboard, and uh, as they went in the water, sunk down below the oil water, came up, they had a thin film of oil on their bodies, and uh, this became human torches. So that was the saddest thing in the morning, to see these men being burned like torches. How about you? I understand that uh, you also, at one point, became uh, covered in oil as well. Yes, the, um, and the oil was every place. And uh, I had a white uniform on to uh, start with, but pretty soon it was black with oil. And if I remember correctly, it took about six weeks to get all the oil on my hair. I thought I had it every night, and I just thought I... I spot off my pillow. So uh, it smelled bad. It was slick, made pudding uh, unsure. So that's something that I think is not, we don't think about very often in the attack, is how awful that crude oil was. You said that you were being shot at, that uh, the bullets were going right over your head. 
when were you being shot at? Was that when you were at home, or was that when you were down in the harbor? That's about the time I got to the harbor. Now, the Japanese sent in 75 fighters. They expected opposition, but our airfields were attacked in the first wave, and they had no opposition. So they flew around. They had light bombs and machine guns looking for targets of opportunity. So there I was in my white uniform. I was a pretty good target. But fortunately, he shot over my head. You probably wish you hadn't worn that white uniform that morning, I imagine. Uh, well, when... it was was very conspicuous, yeah. It sounds that way. You and your buddies were making efforts to try to save some of the wounded men and some of the men who were in the water. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, well, um, every one of the ships had shore boats to take the sailors ashore. But instead of doing that, they were right out there in the oil, rescuing and pulling up guys. So within, um, oh, I'd say 20 minutes, most of the dead wounded were removed from the ship. So that was one of the heroic things that happened that morning. The boat crews, without regard to their own safety, uh, took care of the wounded and the dead. You were a postmaster on board the West Virginia. And as the postmaster, you got the opportunity to uh, know many of the men who were killed and wounded. You took it upon yourself to gather names and write to those men's families. Well, um, when I got aboard and looked for something to do, the flames were approaching ammunition lockers. So I knew if the flames reached those, there would be some pretty bad secondary explosions. So we were moored to another battleship in Tennessee, which was not damaged. So I got a fire hose to Tennessee and was fighting the fire to keep it from getting where the ammunition was. But uh, seeing bodies around, that always distracted for what uh, I was doing. So the thought went through my mind was their parents We'll get a telegram from the Navy Department just saying they were killed in action. And I didn't think that was very good closure. Now, we were equipped with fireproof lanyards and uh, identification tags. So I could go around and read the tag. I memorized as many as I could and then wrote to their parents and told them how they died. Did you hear from any of those families? Yes, many of them. Uh, uh, at that period of time, uh, there was no sense of history. So I only saved one letter that I still have today. But, um, uh, of course, I, some of them were just badly wounded, and their parents got the message they'd been killed. So they didn't know until they got my letter that their sons were still alive. You say that uh, you only kept one letter. Why did you keep that one letter, and what did it say? Well, actually, um, years later, I ran across one of the men that I'd wrote a letter to his parents, and he gave me a copy of the letter that I'd written. That was maybe uh, 15 years after the attack. 
So as I said, I had no sense of history, and that just a day's work is the writing of letters. You are in Hawaii right now to attend the 75th commemoration. What's the atmosphere like there in Hawaii? We have a memorial service uh, down in Pearl Harbor. Then in the afternoon, there's a parade. And there's about uh, 75 to 100 Pearl Harbor survivors that take uh, place in the parade. So this is national news. The networks are all here. So it's a big day, this 75th anniversary. The oldest survivor, Ray Chavez, is 104. I'm 103. So we know each other well and exchange uh, visits often. Yes, actually, I'm the second oldest known. So Ray and I will ride in the parade tomorrow in the lead car. We're getting a lot of attention that we don't necessarily deserve. From what I understand, you mark this day every year because you want Americans to remember. What should they remember? Yes, well, I feel the uh, lasting lesson of Pearl Harbor and the one I tried to pass along, it's from a speech that President Ronald Reagan gave in 1983. He said, uh, we must maintain peace through strength. He coined a phrase that said, weakness invites aggression. So as I talk to uh, this generation and the next, I say, you're the leaders. You're the builders. You're the taxpayers. Payers. You're the legislators. Keep America strong. I saw an old parking sign the other day that said, don't even think about parking here. I've kind of uh, changed that a little bit and said, we must keep America so strong in space, in cyberspace, in the skies, on the ground, on the sea, and under the sea, so strong that no tyrannical government will even think about attacking us. So that's my message. Keep America so strong, it can never happen again. Jim Downing, it has been an honor to speak with you this morning, and uh, I hope you enjoy yourselves in, yourself in Hawaii. And uh, thank you for your service and for telling your story today. Well, I thank you for the opportunity. It's nice to talk with you. Jim Downing, 103 years old, the second oldest Pearl Harbor survivor. His son, Dr. David Downing, teaches English at Elizabethtown College. And uh, quite a story, quite a story, his, his uh, story of survival on December 7th, 1941. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 21-year-old Lee Fox was a native of New Cumberland who had been stationed at Pearl Harbor for just a few months when the bombing occurred. Lee Fox was one of the first casualties of the attack when he was killed at an airfield. The Gettysburg Museum of History has an exhibit dedicated to Lee Fox. The museum's curator is Eric Dorr, who joins us this morning. Mr. Dorr, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me on today. What can you tell me about Lee Fox? Well, Lee Fox was, as you said, a, a native of New Cumberland, Pennsylvania, 
and he attended uh, New Cumberland High School and then later on went on to Franklin and Marshall. Um, he was trained in civil, at the Civil Aeronautics course in Florida, and he received his aviation wings. And, and I, I believe it was in September of uh, 1941, he was transferred to um, the, the base next to Pearl Harbor, and, and it was a Hawaiian word called, uh, I'm going to attempt to say it here, <laughs> Kanaohe, which was a naval air base just outside of Pearl Harbor. And they were actually hit before, just before Pearl Harbor was hit. And he, along with a few other men, were killed. And uh, he is considered the first, if or one of the first, if not the first men, to be killed in the attack on December 7, 1941. And, uh, we, you know, we got this grouping just, just last week. I mean, it, it was really um, great timing, um, and we're, we're, we're still going through it and processing everything because there's letters to his mother and telegrams and photographs and, and, and his uniform as well with his um, golden uh, bullion naval wings that he had just earned. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite a poignant group, you know, and, and especially when you read through his letters and, and, and you get a feel for who he was and how excited he was to be a naval aviator. And at that time, being assigned to Hawaii was, of course, a great assignment. You know, oh, I, I, think, I think even today would be a pretty good uh, assignment. But tell us about some of those letters, because I think one of the things that you get out of your exhibit and when you see some of these letters, hear about some of the stories about Lee Fox, is that he's not a number. He was a real human being. He was a real person. You know, we talk about more than 2,400 people were killed at Pearl Harbor. You know, we, we tend to put numbers to them. And, exactly. you know, we, we can't really picture it when it's that, that number is that big. But when you hear about this 21-year-old man who lived in our own backyard, and then you read about some of his opinions and his letters back home, tell us about Lee Fox, the person. Well, as I said, he seemed pretty excited to be in in Hawaii, and some of the letters um, are, are, are pretty much what he's doing on, in his spare time. He, he's he's telling his parents that he misses hunting in Pennsylvania. One of the letters talks about that, how how he missed hunting, but he he picked up spear fishing in Hawaii, and he, one of the letters expresses how how interesting spear spear fishing is and how the fish come right up to you with the with the goggles that you wear underwater. So he's very excited about that. Another letter talks about getting a, a guitar. You know, in Hawaii everybody was I guess was playing ukuleles and guitars at that time and um and, and he, he's taking up the guitar. And it, and it appears he, he was trying to have an automobile shipped out there. I d I d I didn't know that was possible at that time, but he keeps talk talking in several letters about um the old Ford and, and how, how he can't wait till it gets here. So apparently he must have at least been attempting to have his car shipped out there from Florida because he was in Florida before Hawaii. And, uh, you know, you, you get that feeling that here's a guy, 21 years old, who just, you know, he just earned his naval wings. He had the whole world ahead of him. And, and to be killed in, in, in such a tragic and unexpected way you know, it's, it's very sad, you, you know, and, and, you know, today, Pearl Harbor Day, or any of these big anniversaries, is a time when people can reflect on, on the Americans who made that ultimate sacrifice, 
and it's a, it's a day that the media does pay attention to that, and right, rightly so. But you know, when when you think about this stuff in 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 other terms besides just numbers, as you said, it really you know it, it really personalizes their stories. You know, I, I've gone over to Normandy, and I've seen the the cemetery over there, and, and you just see thousands of, of headstones. And, uh, you know, I, I had the opportunity of going over there in 2015 with a, with a veteran, and he said something that sticks with me, and I think about it all the time. You know, he said each one of those headstones represents a man, but it also represents a family, because each one of those people who were killed also had a mother, a brother, a father, a wife, you know, and, and, and the cost of war is just so, it, it's so colossal when, when you think of it. You know, if you multiply each one of those crosses that you're seeing in any of these American cemeteries times however many family members they have and, and, and what it does to people, you know, it, it's very sad. And, and, you know, experiencing that with a real veteran, you know, I, I got to say, I, I was listening to your conversation with the man that was on before me, and, and I, I believe you said he's 103 or yes, something. Yes, yes. And, and, and they really were the greatest generation. I mean, these guys were incredible. And mm. being able to listen to these guys who did survive, and every one of them that I've talked to always says that, you know, we weren't the ones that were heroes, we weren't the ones that did anything. It's the guys that are underground who, who are still over there are the real heroes. And, and the, the humility of that, you know, the, the, how humble they are, and their words are just, you know. Pearl Harbor Day is a day when people think about it, you know, maybe once a year, where in my job I think about it every day. And, and you know, I, I experience this every day with the artifacts we have. You know, part of our museum's mission statement actually is, you know, to, to honor our veterans and tell their stories. And that's what we try to do. Well, Eric, let me, can I interrupt you for just one second? I, I, you know, that's one of the things that struck me about this is that most people, they think of Gettysburg uh, and the Gettysburg uh, Museum of History in particular, they think of Civil War. Why a World War II exhibit uh, uh, that focuses on, uh, you know, an area veteran? Well, the Gettysburg Museum of History is not just about Gettysburg and the Civil War. It's, it's a history museum. We, we cover all eras of American history. And, of course, we do have a big Civil War exhibit that focuses around the Battle of Gettysburg. But we also have items from the presidents who have visited in Gettysburg. We have an exhibit on General Eisenhower, who, of course, lived in Gettysburg. And uh, we, we have a big D-Day exhibit. But when we, when we launched the D-Day exhibit several years ago, I started thinking, well, we need to represent the men that fought in the Pacific as well. And so we opened up a small Iwo Jima exhibit, and then we had the opportunity to get Ensign Lee Fox's uh, archive here, and, and I immediately jumped on it because of his local connection. You know, I mean, it, it, he's so close to Gettysburg. And so, you know, the Gettysburg Museum of History isn't just Battle of Gettysburg and Civil War. We try to honor all veterans. So, uh, your, uh, Eric, your address for those uh, who aren't familiar with Gettysburg but, but may be visiting soon, your address is what? 219 Baltimore Street, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And the website is www.gettysburgmuseumofhistory.com. And we have a very active Facebook page. So if you go on Facebook, 
put in Gettysburg Museum history, we put historical posts up every day. We have about 116,000 followers, which is pretty good for a small museum. It sounds that way. Uh, Eric Dorr is the curator of the Gettysburg Museum of History. Eric, thank you very much for being with us today and telling uh, Lee Fox's story. Well, thank you for having me, and God bless America. Coming up uh, tonight at 9 on uh, WITF-TV, for re- you can tune in to WITF-TV to, for the program Remember Pearl Harbor. It's narrated by Tom Selleck. The documentary chronicles the personal stories of veterans and citizens who witnessed the surprise attack by the Japanese on the American Pacific Fleet on December 7th, 1941. That's tonight at 9 on WITF-TV. Yesterday... December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Four battleships were destroyed or sunk during the Pearl Harbor attack, the worst being the USS Arizona. The USS Pennsylvania was in dry dock at Pearl Harbor, a short distance away from the Arizona and the other battleships. The Pennsylvania was damaged in the attack. 24 crewmen were killed and 29 wounded. The State Museum of Pennsylvania is commemorating the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor and the 100th anniversary of America's involvement in World War I with an exhibit entitled Pennsylvania at War, the Saga of the USS Pennsylvania. Robert Hill is the exhibit's curator. Bob, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. I had an opportunity uh, to to speak at uh, the opening of the exhibit the other day, and very, very impressive. But let's talk about the Pennsylvania. Kind of go backwards here in the life of the Pennsylvania, since it is the 75th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. What was the USS Pennsylvania doing at Pearl Harbor? Well, it was the uh, the flagship for the Pacific Fleet. Uh, at that point, uh, the commander of the fleet, Admiral Kimmel, actually had his headquarters ashore. The, uh, the previous admiral, though, had used the ship as his uh, base of operations. Uh, it was equipped for an admiral and, and staff members. And specifically to when they were at sea to be in a, uh, a command ship. Now, when you say it was the flagship, what does that mean? Well, that means that a, a, an officer of flag grade, an admiral, uh, would be present or uh, it would be his designated ship. Why'd they choose the Pennsylvania as a flagship? People keep asking me that, and unfortunately, I haven't been <laughs> able to find the uh, the archival source to really uh, answer the question. Uh, at the time it was built, it was, of course, the, the biggest and the best. Uh, this was in 1916, 100 years ago. And so uh, it could well be that it was just chosen at that point for that reason. The next ship to come out was the Arizona, its sister, um, which was pretty much identical. So there would have been little uh, point to switching the ship's, uh, uh, the, the flagship designation at that time. You know, when you uh, see pictures of the Pennsylvania, it uh, was designated as BB-38, right? Yes. And you see Arizona, BB-39. Mm-hmm. So when you say they were sister ships, was it, was it just because they were so alike that they were sister ships? Uh, well, the... They were built pretty much to the same plans. Okay. 
the the navy at that time there was a uh, an arms race going on particularly between england and germany uh the united states navy was running in third place uh the navy actually wanted two new battleships every year uh this was in 1912 uh, when congress authorized the ship but congress was uh, not quite as generous as the navy would have liked and so they were only allocating out one battleship per year so the Pennsylvania, I mean, when we see a lot of the pictures and we read and hear a lot about the history of the bombing of Pearl Harbor today, most of the focus will be on those four ships that were destroyed or were, were sunk. And as I said, the, the worst being the Arizona being having the most casualties and still at the bottom of, of, the, of the harbor. Um, often you will hear that call where those battleships were were docked as Battleship Row. Why was Pennsylvania in dry dock? What is dry dock? Well, it's a uh, a special recessed uh, area where a ship is um, pulled in, where there's a, a caisson door over the end of what amounts to a, a large U-shaped uh, depression, uh, so that the the ship can be uh, floated in there. There are blocks underneath, and all the water is pumped out, so they can have access to the the bottom of the ship. In the case of the Pennsylvania, it was a propulsion question, and uh, it had taken longer than expected to get one of the propellers remounted. It was supposed to be done on the previous Friday, uh, had not been able to be completed, and so the ship had to stay in the dry dock over the weekend. Mm -hmm. And there were two destroyers in front, docked in front of uh, the Pennsylvania, correct? Yes. Who were, what were those two ships? And uh, tell us a little bit about them. Well, that was the, the Casson and the Downs. Uh, they were Mahan-class destroyers. Uh, the Casson actually had been built at the, uh, the Philadelphia Navy Yard uh, in the, in the mid-30s. Mm -hmm. uh, now, as we said, those four battleships that were destroyed or sunk, uh, you know, that's what get most of the attention. But it does not mean that the Pennsylvania was not targeted. Uh, the Pennsylvania was targeted, but there were some some things going on that was fortunate for the crew members and also the ship itself in that there was a civilian crane operator there. I'm not saying that that saved the, the ship, but talk a little bit about that, why the Pennsylvania did not come get, suffer as much damage as the other battleships. Well, there's probably a combination of, uh, of reasons. The dry dock itself, because the ship was sitting recessed, it, much of it was, was below what would be ground level or, or even water level. Um, this meant that only the gunners at the very top of the mast had any ability really to, uh, to fight back. The, uh, the gunners on the, sh uh, the deck of the ship uh, really couldn't see until planes got almost directly overhead. The, um, the crane that you made reference to was actually on rails that could travel around the outer edge of the dry dock. And the uh, operator, George Walters, uh, started moving the crane in a way sort of to run interference uh, with the incoming Japanese planes. He could turn the, the crane and with the boom uh, and also make the crane travel back and forth. 
At first, the, the gunners in the Pennsylvania became annoyed at this because they thought he was he was becoming yet another interference to what they were trying to do. But they did pick up on the fact that the movement of the crane was an indication of where there was going to be a plane coming. And so they could at least get their gun in the general area uh, and be prepared to fire back once it, it cleared. They could their view cleared over the top of the uh, the dry dock. Now, so he was able to move that crane that quickly that he could give a warning as to which direction the planes were coming from? I think it was probably, it, he was pretty much at the at the battleship and would just sort of move back and forth. I don't think it moved that quickly. As I say, he could rotate it and uh, swing the boom back and forth. Uh, it it lasted until a bomb, as the, the the planes tried to bomb the battleship, they were going wide with a lot of their shots, and actually one of them hit the track, and that, that stopped his uh, direct participation for the most part. I'm a little surprised that the Japanese mm -hmm. didn't target the crane. True enough. I think that it was probably because it was unexpected that they didn't they they were concentrating on the ship and all of a sudden this got in their way and you know the so they didn't they didn't really probably think to to blast away at the crane but yes they could have they could have taken it out pretty easily so the pennsylvania was damaged what kind of damage did it suffer it took one 500 uh pound bomb hit amidships uh took out an anti-aircraft gun uh damaged the galley uh, killed about tw uh, a little over 20 men, about mm -hmm. 24, as I recall. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the other uh, two destroyers that were docked in front of the Pennsylvania. They sustained much heavier damage than the Pennsylvania. Yeah, actually, they were catching what the what wasn't hitting the battleship. Uh, the it, it started a very uh, serious fire. Uh, there was an explosion of a torpedo on the downs part of the uh the tube from that ended up on the on the foredeck of the of the pennsylvania uh it was determined that what they had to do was to uh to reflood the dock there were two reasons for this one the, the it was realized that if the japanese managed to get a hit in on that caisson door that was holding up back the water the the surge would in essence pick the battleship up and just crush the destroyers in front of it and not do anything any good. The second thing, one of those bomb hits around the outer edge took out the connections that the ships had to the dock, which was providing the power, the steam, all of that. So in order to get their generators running again, they had to fire their own boilers. To do that, they needed water, and they had to be able to draw in uh, water from within the dock. So after Pearl Harbor, uh, the Pennsylvania was not damaged to the point where it uh, couldn't be salvaged. It went to San Francisco for repairs. And uh, then, unlike World War I, during World War I, uh, and, you know, we're, since we're focusing kind of on World War II today, can't get a whole lot into World War I, but uh, during World War I, the Pennsylvania just cruised kind of patrolled the east coast of the United States because it was considered too modern that uh, it was operated by uh, it was uh, you know operated by fuel oil which was needed in other areas of the war but unlike World War 1 and World War 2 after those repairs at San Francisco what was the, the the job of the Pennsylvania at that point well it patrolled uh in the area between the west coast and 
uh, Hawaii for most of, of 1942, and then beginning in the spring of 1943 with the uh, response to the uh, Aleutian Island invasion and the retaking of that, it, it began the uh, the mission that was going to occupy it for the rest of the war, which was providing fire support for these island uh, invasions across the Pacific, uh, doing an initial bombardment, uh, softening up beaches, any any uh, discernible targets that were out there would be uh, hit. And then as the, uh, the soldiers or Marines went into these islands, they would, of course, encounter camouflaged bunkers, that sort of thing. And the connection would, uh, the, the radio would be used to, to go back to the ship to give coordinates as to where this target is. And then the, the battleship would fire its guns, uh, probably, particularly if, it, if it's a uh, cement bunker or something, an armor-piercing shell, which we have one of those in the exhibit to, uh, to show the sort of thing that um, was being used and was the, the main reason for the ship's existence. So let's go to August 12th, 1945. Uh, Okinawa, the Pennsylvania sails into Okinawa. What happened that day? It, it arrived in uh, in Buckner Bay, which was the, the fleet anchorage. Uh, it, the ships were, were gathering uh, for uh, what would be the uh, form uh, for the invasion of, of Japan that would be coming. There's mopping up going on uh, on Okinawa, but it's pretty much secured. The uh, a single Japanese plane managed to uh, to get through un, unseen and hit the Pennsylvania in the uh, stern with a single torpedo, uh, caused a great deal of damage. Uh, hit back in the area of the propellers and rudder, uh, killed all the men in a single compartment. Twenty men uh, were were killed. Uh, it took a uh, heroic effort by the, the the crew, the damage control parties, uh, and also, fortunately, uh, some uh, seagoing tugs that were there with the fleet. Uh, they moved the ship over to a more shallow area uh, and got the pumps going and uh, managed to save it. But it was out of the war. It was the last major ship. Uh, to be hit in the war. So it was in at the very beginning, and it was the last uh, major ship to be uh, a casualty. So, Bob Hill, uh, we only have a minute or so left. Tell me a little bit about the exhibit at the State Museum of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania at War, the Saga of the USS Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. It it traces the uh, the entire naval career of the, the ship, um, the, the change in the world from when it and other battleships like it were the uh, the ultimate weapon that, that nations were were looking to compete with each other over uh, through the two world wars, the the peace uh, time period between, and then the post war period when it becomes uh, a target for the new ultimate weapon, the atomic bomb, uh, which it it survived to the two bikini uh, bomb tests, uh, and then was scuttled two years later because it was too radioactive to be scrapped. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to make a transition into that with our next guest who actually saw uh, the funnel cloud over uh, Hiroshima. Bob Hill is the curator of the exhibit Pennsylvania at War, the saga of the USS Pennsylvania. Bob, thank you very much for being with us today. 
My pleasure. Thank you. You, you can see the exhibit at the State Museum, and uh, Bob has also written a story in Pennsylvania Heritage Magazine that uh, you can read and learn a lot more about the, the Pennsylvania. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. On today's program, we've talked with a Pearl Harbor survivor, heard about another, and learned more about the USS Pennsylvania. Now let's go to the end of the war and meet a man who was a hero himself, but saw the mushroom cloud from the atomic bomb over Hiroshima. I was going to say 92. Are you 92 or 93? 92. 92-year-old 92. Charles Reddy is from Ephrata in Lancaster County. Uh, Major Redding, it is an honor to uh, have the opportunity to speak with you today and uh, to, to tell your story. Thank you very much for being with us today. Well, uh, I, re- I remember that we were bombing Tokyo, and uh, I'm coming back looking for zeros. We're always looking for zeros. <clears throat> and my top turret gunner says, are we lost? I said, what do you mean, are we lost? He said, well, look down there. And I put the nose down, and what I saw is unbelievable. Uh, we saw this cloud, sort of like, it looked sort of like a mushroom. And uh, I mean, we had just left and looked at Okinawa as a city. <laughs> and when we came back, the city was gone, and there were fires burning in every place. But what was more amazing than anything was the railroad tracks. I used to use the railroad tracks to go in to get targets that we were going to bomb, and they were gone. I mean, what does it take to melt or or disintegrate solid steel tracks? Did you have any idea what it was? I mean, had you heard any rumors about an atomic weapon? No, not at all. And we got back, and we didn't know at all what happened. And I had a little Philco radio, and I turned this radio on, and it said on here, the world's first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. Then we knew what happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you would, you say, now, just for a little bit of background, uh, you piloted a bomber. What, what kind of bomber was it? That it was were... a B-25. B-25 I had, bomber. I had two different ones. I lost one. Uh, uh, we lost one in the ocean. And the second one was an, an H model, which had a 75-millimeter cannon, and that did a lot of damage. I, I was glad to have that one. Mm-hmm. So. so when you say you dipped and to, to look at uh, what was below at Hiroshima, I mean, you talked about the fires and all yeah. that, but kind of give us a sense of how widespread this was and, and describe what you saw. Well, I, I didn't know exactly how wide a city should be, you know. But Hiroshima, when we left, it looked like a pretty big city to me. And every now and then, you'd see a little wall standing. I mean, that, that, and but they told me that it was that dry that you could push that wall over with your hand. And uh, fires, little fires burning every place, you know. And uh, I just wonder, and another thing, I was told that there were some American servicemen who were prisoners of war in Hiroshima. And they also perished, mm-hmm. you know, and that's pretty bad. So. Uh, what was your altitude at that time? I was at about uh, maybe 5,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, when you're at that altitude, or you, you can't see people, vehicles, and no, everything? No. no. Okay. No. So even if you, if they had survived or there are people moving around, you wouldn't have been able to see them? No. Not the people. No. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when your your emotions when you saw this, I mean, 
uh, obviously you didn't know what it was. Mm. Was there a sense of fear, or what? What, what were your what were your emotions? I don't, I don't think it was a sense of fear. I think it was just astonishment. You know, I mean, my whole crew said we, we were talking on the intercom. You know what? We all thought, what in the world happened to this city down there? And no, well, we didn't know anything about atomic bombs or anything. You know. And, of course, when we got back uh, on the radio, we found out. And then I still didn't understand, you know, what an atomic bomb really was. But we found, we sure saw what it did, you know. And so, you actually had some physical, uh, you know, you, well, you, I, I won't say suffered, but you had, uh, you know, you saw something as a result or in your physical, on your body oh, yeah, as a result uh, of this. It took maybe a week or so, and we <laughs> we'd run our fingers through our hair, and open up, and hair would drop out. You know, and this this happened to the whole crew, and but it after maybe I don't know a few weeks or so, it started coming back again, and I was always worried about the radiation, but thank goodness, my children are fine, and my grandchildren are fine. But and you never had cancer or anything like no, that. No, no. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Um... From what I understand, you tell me, but you may be the last living person who saw that uh, mushroom cloud from the air. Do you know whether that's correct or not? Uh, there was a man from Denver. Uh, Denver in Lancaster County. Yeah, and he... Uh, yeah, tell this story. This is amazing. Yeah, his first name was Don, but I, I'm terrible on names. I forgot his last name. But we used to swim together at the Airport Rec Center, and he, came, he was in a B-24. I was in a B-25. I saw the bomb, the cloud to my right. He saw it to his left. Therefore, we were must have been only a few miles apart, both coming back from Japan. And we got to talk about this, and he said the same things that I did, you know. He couldn't understand either what in the world happened, you know. So. But, but uh, Don passed away? Yes, yes, about so a you, year ago. you may be the last living person who saw it from the air. Wow, yeah. I miss my crew. Every time that uh, this time comes around in the year, I, I think of my crew a lot, you know. You didn't lose a member of your crew, did you? No, we were the only one that didn't lose a member of the crew, so. How did how did that happen? Well, I mean, they, you flew 69 they, missions. They told me that I flew the bomber like a fighter plane. <laughs> and, and how was that? <laughs> well, I used to try to outmaneuver everything I could. <laughs> well, you know, I, I wonder when you saw that mushroom cloud, were you still worried about seeing zeros at that point? Yeah, you're always worried about seeing enemy aircraft because and we also, you know, dropped torpedoes mm -hmm. with a B-25, and uh, that's a little dangerous. <laughs> well, so you actually did see zeros in the air. Tell us about that. I mean, it's not a dogfight because you have a much larger well, plane. Well, I, I don't want to talk, talk about that because I saw a lot of my boys get shot down, okay? Mm -hmm. And I, that brings back very vivid memories, which I don't really like to talk about, okay? But I did read, I did read a story when, uh, I, I mean, you said that going into the war, that, like anyone who had compassion and uh, you know, was a human being, that, you know, you really were concerned about having to hurt other people, how to kill other people. I was. But there, uh, was, there was one incident in particular that, I won't say you got over it, no. but it, it helped you to understand why you were doing what you were. I hated to think about having to kill people, but one of the pilots parachuted. 
And as he's going down, a zero came and killed him, shot machine gunned him while he's coming down. And then I became what you call a professional killer. I decided I wanted to kill as many of them as I could. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, but that's the way I felt. Mm -hmm. I, I imagine that there were a lot of people who kind that's of had the same mindset. The, that's against the Articles of War. I mean, to shoot a man in a parachute. You know, and I saw him slump, and I knew, you know, I knew that was it. So, mm -hmm. you you did fly uh, sixty nine missions. Uh, where did you spend most of the war, and what were those missions? Well, we started out in the Gilbert Islands, and uh, we did Truk, Woji, Meloalap, Kwajalein, Majuro, all these islands that were held by the Japanese. These are, these were our targets in the beginning, and then we helped take Okinawa. And then from there on, we did all the rest of our missions bombing Japan. Mm -hmm. So, actually, and you mentioned earlier that uh, you were bombing Tokyo uh, on your way back when you saw the bombing of Hiroshima. Um, how far into the bombing of Tokyo, how many days or whatever, uh, were you there from the beginning of the bombing of Tokyo? Yeah. Uh, oh, one thing, we were never allowed to bomb the emperor's castle. Really? Nope. They mm. said that would make him some kind of a hero, you know. A martyr. And, uh, yeah, a martyr. And it's probably good we didn't because the aerial photograph showed that they had rings and rings of anti-aircraft protecting him. Mm. So that would have been a real hot mission. <laughs> well, speaking of anti-aircraft fire, I, I mean, most of us get this from what we've seen in movies. What is it like when you're in a B-25 and... You're well, all you see is a puff, a sort of a puff, and and they're all. Uh, you try to change altitude, when you see puffs getting uh, close alongside of you, you either go up or go down. You try to change altitude because that makes the gunner change. You know the, the fuses, mm -hmm. and you see, if you see them on both sides. <laughs> That gets a little scary. I can imagine it would. <laughs> uh, well, Major Reddick, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And as I said, it is an honor to have the opportunity to speak with you. We have about 30 seconds left on this 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor when we're thinking back to World War II. When you think back, and do you have a message that you leave with people who ask you about the war? No, I just hope that the leaders in the future will think twice about wanting to go to war because... As far as I'm concerned, nobody wins in a war. And I always hope that my children and my grandchildren would never have to go through what I went through. Mm -hmm. uh, Major Charles Reddick, again, thank you very much for being with us today, and thank you for your service. Thank you again. Thank you, too. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we have uh, Joshua Johnson, who is the host of the new program 1A that will replace the Diane Reem show next year, early next year. Also, um, you probably heard about uh, the remains of a body that was found in Cumberland County over the weekend. We're going to have uh, Dauphin County Coroner Graham Hetrick on the program talk about uh, forensic uh, medicine and uh, trying to identify uh, remains like that. That's coming up on tomorrow's show.